think of the fast-moving world of tech, you probably think of Amazon, Salesforce. When it comes to consulting, you probably think of PwC and Deloitte. As an MBA grad, all these organizations were aspirational to even get a call back for an interview. But my special guest today has worked for all of them in very prestigious roles. Today's guest is also one of my best friends and a genius in every sense of the word, and that is Adolphus Bassi. Today's podcast will really go over his secrets to having success in an interview, but most importantly, his journey from a small town in Nigeria to working with some of the largest and most impressive fast-growing organizations all across North America. He is also one of my best friends, so we get to get a little bit deep dive into the story of how we met and really our, how our relationship has formed over the past few years. What's very interesting about Adolphus and this story is really how unselfish he is. He has helped me, and I will probably say almost every single one of my classmates land a job of their dreams, helping them prepare for interviews, write their cover letters, and really help people unlock what it truly means to be creative and an individual. One thing I can say about Adolphus is that if me and him are in a room together, and they say, who is the hardest working person in the room? I don't know if I could say with a straight face that I would be. He is the hardest working person I know, and probably the happiest person I know as well. And if you read books like The Happiness Advantage, you really see that being happy is one of the biggest assets you can have in your life, not only for success, but to allow success for people around you. Over this podcast, we will go over his story, how he got into the world of cybersecurity, which now is one of the hottest industries, how he was able to get all these interviews, get all these jobs, but also through a secret success method. And by the way, you know what his secret to success is? It truly is hard work. What he has taught me, and you'll hear over the podcast, is that everything that comes out of your mouth, every word that you write on a piece of paper has to bring value. Some of the words I've added into my dictionary or into my, uh, you could say, my vocabulary are red flag and what? Mostly around the idea that anything you have on your resume should give a reason should be a purpose, should have connection back to a numerical value. And every word you say has to be calculated. And coming from, you know, someone who did a business undergrad, did my MBA, I thought, oh, I knew, I knew how to interview. I talk about myself, you know, I'll have a resume, I'll apply to a bunch of organizations. The ability for Adolphus to really have the mindset of custom tailoring every conversation, every resume to achieve that goal is something I never realized until meeting him. And, and I will say truthfully, because of him, I've had some of the greatest success in my life throughout my education and throughout my career, really due to that mindset he has instilled within me. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoy this episode and get to hear from Adolphus, who I will truthfully say is one of the smartest, brightest, and happiest people I will ever know and may ever know. And one day, I guarantee, will be the CEO of the world, or at least a leader within any industry he chooses to because he is and always will be a genius in the hearts of many thank you so much for joining me adolphus so you are one of my best friends we met at ubc um how, let's, i need to start off with this story because it's the funniest story and describes our relationship quite well it was before our first assignment we had to hand in something and then you walk up to me arms crossed and i think we're both wearing suits at this time because it was a uh event or something and you look you look at my paper because you're let me take a look at this you say this is all wrong you don't have a reference this is a mistake and then gave it back to me and i had to submit it so it already starts off with a, quite a sassy uh introduction <laughs> but then we became friends throughout the um throughout the program through a little super group so i guess to start off introduce yourself what is your story who is adolphus bassi <laughs> thank you so much i think before we even start, I really want to thank you so much for inviting me. I really, really love this podcast. Like, I literally listen to, like, all your podcasts every day. And I really love the humor you bring to it. I actually love the stories, like, the entrepreneurs mm -hmm. that you bring in. They have, like, very great stories. And it's always very, very interesting listening to you. Yes! Accurately and 100%, Brendan is one of my best friends. <laughs> if you have ever watched the series or TV show or movie, Psych, you would utterly understand our relationship from there. I am, my name is Adolphus. 
So you can actually call me Basi also because sometimes people find it a little bit difficult to pronounce Adolphus. Mm-hmm. I am from, from Nigeria. I tell everybody this just because like I'm a very proud Nigerian. I am from a small village or a small town called Odukpani in Cross River and I have been in Nigeria for like almost all my life. I recently moved to Canada for my MBA. That's where I met Brendan in business school at UBC. Before the MBA, I used to work in consulting. I used to work specifically in cyber security. I used to work more in tech in technology consulting. I used to help clients look at what their security posture look like, recommend to leadership on how best to like improve their security programs, build new security programs and all. So I saw an opportunity to like build my leadership skills and transfer or transition into the tech industry. And that was one thing that the MBA provided for me. And it was one of like the best experiences in my life. I really love cyber security. And at the end of the day also, apart from work, (laughs) I love talking about DAI a lot, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm a very big fan of that. And apart from that, I love cooking. I I wouldn't say like I'm the best cook, but I try my best to like try out different menus and different food. And on a good day or summers are my best weather, are my best season basically. You would always see me hanging out at the beach, going for a hike or just laughing with friends, mm-hmm. grabbing brunch. I love the outdoors a lot. So that's like a very long spill about myself. <laughs> and yeah, that's me. So how'd you get into cybersecurity? Like that, obviously very hot industry, but like five, 10 years ago, it wasn't as common or wasn't something that became apparent. I mean, during COVID, cybersecurity skyrocketing. how do you choose that industry to focus in? You know what? It's actually very, very interesting because like I remember vividly well, I, my Undergrad was in software engineering. I used to be like a programmer. I actually did my internship in, in a software engineering company. My first job out of my undergrad was actually a programmer. I used to work more in a tech company. So I remember vividly well, I was actually in a career fair during my undergrad. And I met Deloitte. Mm-hmm. And Deloitte was there talking about their consulting. And they were speaking about their cyber security practice and on their, their consulting arm. I was like, wait, what? Like, I was like, I never knew what cyber security was, but the discussion I had with Deloitte at that time was like one of the best discussions ever. And I was like, whoa, this is something that is very new. I think this was in like 2011, there about, or 2012. I was like, this is a field that is like very new. I had no idea what it is it just sounded fancy <laughs> and right from undergrad I, I knew that i wanted to get something that was like a, a little bit niche or mm-hmm. something that was different so i was like cool i think i want to try this out and i used to be a, a, a like i used to be more on like the very mm-hmm. technical side of things but i also wanted to marry my technical skills with like people's skill so i was like mm-hmm. mm, should i go work for like a tech company per se and be like a mm-hmm. software developer or like an in-house cyber mm-hmm. security person versus being consulting. I was like, I think I would try out consulting. So that is like what happened. So I'd, I started my career, there like zero knowledge about what cyber mm-hmm. security is, but I kind of like learned on the job and mm-hmm. I, I grew that passion into it. And yeah, yeah, am I? So you do start security. You're, you're one of the youngest people to get promoted into the position you had. Then you're like, you know what? I'm going to drop this all and get my MBA. What, why leave a relatively, you know, very successful career? You were doing quite well. Young superstar. <laughs> then you decide, I'm going to get my MBA. So why did you make that decision to leave it all behind and get more education? You know, that is like, that is like very interesting. Like, <laughs> Now that you say, like, as I forgot that I was, like, the youngest person in my team, like, I was, like, the youngest person in my team. Yeah, that's true. So I think for me, like, I think one of the things that made me really, like, pivot from, like, consulting or, like, go for my Mm -hmm. MBA 
was more on number one i wanted something a little bit different mm -hmm. i wanted to move from consulting to like the tech space mm -hmm. and i wanted roles that were more of like technical pm roles mm -hmm. right and one of the things that i and i did like not to sound consultantish, but I kind of like did, did a gap analysis mm -hmm. on myself, and I was like, okay, I want to move into the tech world. I want to work more in spaces like TPM, mm -hmm. but focused on security. Right? What does it look like? What do I need to do mm -hmm. to get there? And I saw one of the things that I needed to be successful was having like an MBA, right? Because mm -hmm. I need to like understand the business. I need to build my leadership skills. And I was like, okay, cool. That looks interesting. I should probably try to like explore this and see what like the next steps look like. Try and try to see. And UBC has always been like my dream school. So I was like, mm -hmm. hmm, let me tr try this out and see what it looks like in terms of that. Mm -hmm. And why why UBC in Canada? I mean, you, you're from Nigeria. Literally, if you're going to go overseas or north to Europe, you know, east or west, depending on which way, you know, which flight you take to the States or Canada, why UBC? How, and also, how many schools did you apply to initially? So, great question. Like, I did apply to, like, a lot of schools. I really, probably, if I should look at the numbers, probably, like, three to four. Okay, it's not correct. Yeah, not bad. There about. But I... Actually, to be honest, I applied to just one school in Canada, and that was UBC. And I think UBC was more on the fact that, hey, I, UBC has been like, in Nigeria, UBC is like well-known. Really? <laughs> so, <laughs> UBC is like extremely well-known. Like I remember in my undergrad, I was looking at schools in Canada, and UBC was like number one. Mm -hmm. So I think, especially because of the computer science program mm -hmm. so because mm -hmm. you can imagine i'm a software i was a software engineer so i would be more interested in schools that have like very good tech mm -hmm. programs so U ubc was like top on the list mm -hmm. and i think one thing that really drew me to the program was number one was the courses so i saw mm -hmm. the courses were like so unique right mm -hmm. i saw that they were teaching things like sustainability i was like mm -hmm. wait what <laughs> like i have no idea about sustainability i should probably like look at learning more about mm -hmm. this and the professors were like very great mm -hmm. <laughs> shout out to all the professors i was like yeah this looks awesome for me mm -hmm. and also i w got a good offer mm -hmm. so i went under like a foundation that was mm -hmm. really that was really going to sponsor me so i was like mm -hmm. great offer time to look at that next phase of my mm -hmm. life so you you've never visited Canada prior to this, right? Was no. this your so this was completely brand new. And that was my first time living Africa. <laughs> oh wow. wow. So big change. Now, how much before the program starts did you get to Canada? Like I so I had never been outside Africa. Like I've always been like in Nigeria, like mm -hmm. traveling across like Africa. But like I think one thing that I probably did a lot was just like visit Canada from TV shows and like from mm. movies. <laughs> like I knew about like Canada and I, I knew about America through like mm. movies and TV shows. So that was like the only experience I had of Canada and the US. And I kind of like also read a lot. So mm. that's so all. You get to Canada, the program is starting relatively soon. What's the first thing you did? Or what's like the first thing you visited, first thing you ate? Was there anything when you got here, you're like, I want to try this because this is Canadian in my mind. Because every time I visit anywhere, it's like, oh, I want to have this pizza or I want to do this. Or there's something like very typical of that country or that city to do. What Was there anything you did right away that you were like, this is my first Canadian experience in your eyes? You know what? I think, to be honest, because like um, I I I am in Vancouver, right? Mm -hmm. Vancouver has like a lot of diverse food option, right? So mm -hmm. it's you don't see that much in Nigeria, right? So mm -hmm. I think one thing that I did was like, I think let me think ab about it very well because a lot has changed, right? So mm -hmm. I think one thing I thought of in terms of like food and all was like, hey, I want to try out like Tim Beats and <laughs> 
that's like the first thing like I've never tried before because like it's mm-hmm. so similar to puff puff. Like mm-hmm. puff puff is a Nigerian meal mm-hmm. that is like very similar to to team bitter. I was like, whoa, mm-hmm. this is this is really nice. And I think just seeing like the different food options was like mm-hmm. also also good. And then I met you guys, you mm-hmm. Tina, Ham, Alex, and then we started exploring like so many different food mm-hmm. options. And I think one thing that really like one of my favorite food is like hot pot. Like that was like mm-hmm. one of the favorite things that that I've tried that I've mm-hmm. never done before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think but something that was like a very big change for me or like a very big culture shock was like mm-hmm. how efficient the transport system is in, in mm-hmm. Canada compared mm-hmm. to like Nigeria, right? Like mm-hmm. looking at like being able to like look at the time schedule on an app was something new. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? So it was like very, very new and different for me, like compared to like the transport system in Nigeria. I think like in Canada, you can effectively survive without a car if you live like very close to like your office and mm-hmm. all those type of things. But mm-hmm. in Nigeria, you need a car. <laughs> you need a car in Nigeria. So those are some like the other culture shock I saw. Mm-hmm. And I think also another cultural shock that I would say would be like in terms of like communication, mm-hmm. like just seeing how people communicate here differently versus like Nigeria, like you could have to like Nigeria, like I know you guys can tell, but like we kind of like speak a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. I think we are a little bit more, should I say, what's the right word? Now that I think of the right word, I, I can't find the mm-hmm. right word, but it's like a different communication style, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And Speaking of that, like, I mean, every culture tends to have a different pacing in the way they speak, different norms and everything else. But typically when you hear those stories, it's people like, oh, I went to England and they have, you know, a little accent, mm-hmm. typically very similar. The speaking patterns, words are a little different, but I'm assuming, firstly, you know, you coming here from my understanding and especially in Vancouver, not a huge Nigerian popula- population. So it's not like, oh, I visited and like, for example, every time. I mean, now when you visit, you know, being in Canada so long, anywhere you go, you'd be like, oh, you're also Canadian. Like, it's so common to meet other people and really tra- mm-hmm. transition well. What what were some of the challenges, especially with re- regards to business or the, the course or even the writing style? Was there any difference in the way you had to communicate, whether it be professionally or even in your, we're going to we'll speak about this soon, but even like your resume style? Or was it pretty much the same? Like, is business very similar across the board? No, it's definitely not. I would say it's def- definitely not that. Like, I would say it's not that similar. Mm-hmm. Like, number one, I schooled in Nigeria, and we mm-hmm. use more of like the British educational system. Mm-hmm. So, like, our writing style was a little bit more different. But mm-hmm. then, the interesting thing is that I was like in a business school, so we had a lot more of like business writing. Mm-hmm. So, since I was already in that space so i mm-hmm. could easily like transfer like my mm-hmm. business writing skill to like the mm-hmm. mba but i guess in terms of like i think something that would probably be like a little bit different that i would mm-hmm. think about in terms of like communication would just be probably like detonation so like mm-hmm. nigerians like have like a, a little bit of deeper tonations right mm-hmm. so that that would be something that i think would be like that stood out for me would be like mm-hmm. the Tonation is like a little bit different, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also like, like Nigeria, it's the same language. Like mm-hmm. we speak the same English, everything. It's kind of just, I would just, the major difference would be like the tonation. What is but tonation? I, tonation is like, I would say, what's the right word? Like it's probably it like how. Like you, you, you know more words than me because you're British schooling. So <laughs> well, how, think... how do you describe tonation? Tonation would be like how the words vibrate or like oh, how you kind of like pronounce the words mm-hmm. or like even the tone, like do you, is your tone or pitch like high mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or oh, a, a little bit more mild. So like Nigerians have like a little bit of that higher tonation versus mm-hmm. like Canadians, right? So mm-hmm. that's something I would say. But I think something that really helps me to like transition very well, mm-hmm. I always like say this to like everybody is like, having friends that were locals, right? So, mm-hmm. like, you guys, like, Brendan, Ham, everybody, Tina, like, really helped me to, like, adjust to, like, the cultural difference. Like, oh, yeah, this is. So, like, just learning from your friends would be, like, very, very important mm-hmm. to, like, 
help transition. And then you are in a school because I went to school here. So it mm -hmm. was more of like schooling here would really give you that opportunity to like mix with other mm -hmm. people. So, yeah. And I found what's interesting about UBC, I, I don't know if this is true, but I would assume one of the most diverse MBA programs, I think 60 something for 65% were international. And that doesn't even take into account, you know, first generation or other cultures who have grown up in Vancouver or around Canada uh, who were there. So I do think it's even, not only are you learning Canadian culture or whatever you'd call Canadian culture, but you're also like, oh, here's Indian culture, here's South American culture. And you're like, oh my goodness, there's definitely everyone's adapting, which I think is interesting as well is that typically, I don't know if this helped or hindered uh, your transition was that, especially within the MBA, there's so many people in our group who are learning even like you said, even if everyone speaks English, no matter where you go, even in to the states, there's like d different sayings, different mm -hmm. sarcasms, hard to tell because you're like, w w is this sarcasm? Are they are they dumb or like what are they doing here? And then yeah, kind of learning. So it's probably interesting learning with a bunch of other people where it's you all have one thing in common, and that's adapting to a new place uh, overall. So yeah. yeah, so you you get here, you know, you're doing the program, you meet me, and we're like, you know, we're having you're adapting learning and then with the MBA we start getting job applications we start applying and one thing I found very shocking was firstly in in life you're like the happiest person the way you speak very dynamic high <laughs> range like and I do I'm not sure in if in Nigeria is like is, I'll ask this first in Nigeria is there a lot of humor in business or is it pretty serious I find in Canada a lot of humor can be thrown in like things tend to be not serious is it very similar or is it a much more serious tonal like conversation so you, you you know what that's like a very interesting question like to to be honest like i have always been like this very like my lifestyle like i'm always like very mm -hmm. happy person i tried mm -hmm. to like find happiness within so mm -hmm. but in nigeria like the nigerian culture is a lot of like humor like we mm -hmm. kind of like laugh a lot like it's mm -hmm. part of like our lifestyle mm -hmm. i think it's also like the people i used to work with right like mm -hmm. my managers at in nigeria like the best like mm -hmm. they always made um, work fun so mm -hmm. it's like a combination of humor but seriousness so i mm -hmm. picked that up and then so i would say it's more of like a pedigree like a, a, an upbringing so like mm -hmm. i am naturally happy and smiling mm -hmm. but i am also very serious <laughs> at, at times so yeah mm -hmm. that's how it is so, and speaking of that serious thing, so I meet Adolphus, we're talking, happiest person, then we get to apply to jobs, and you are the most red flag, and that was a term I use now for, for <laughs> use red flags, or issues with our resumes, or cover letters, or even writing style, and me naturally having a very poor way of, for spelling and grammar, which you are an expert at, it seems, um, how how did you get so good at developing resumes and, and cover letters? And we'll go over like your success with them, but like, were you always good with that? Did you write a lot of job applications in your past or was it just from enjoyment of writing that? Like, how did you get all that experience doing such professional job applications in general? Definitely. That's a great question. So I think before I even go there, I just... It's like said said this stage that these are like all my personal opinion that I'm not, I'm not a, a recruiter. They don't reflect the opinions of like my mm -hmm. current employer. So, but I think to be honest with you, like my mom studied English as a, a in a undergrad. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with my mom, and then she loved writing and reading a whole mm -hmm. lot. And then my mom. I would always send my essay. I'll show my mom my essay, and she's like, "This is wrong. Like, mm -hmm. you don't know how to write." <laughs> so I kind of like picked up writing mm -hmm. from my mom a lot, and then I went into like my undergrad, and I worked in the writing center. Mm -hmm. So as part of the working in the writing center, I used mm -hmm. to like assist my classmates mm -hmm. and other people on like their writing assignments mm -hmm. and then one of the things that i used to do a lot was like cv writing mm -hmm. so we used to do like a lot of like workshops on like how to write a mm -hmm. good cv how to like um make your resume like pass the pass mm -hmm. the two seconds test or like yeah. sorry it's called a 
two minutes test, mm -hmm. right? And then, so what I did was like, I knew right from my undergrad that I wanted to get into consulting. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, consulting is like one of the most difficult places to get into, right? You need to have like a very good CV. You need to be able to like pass the case interviews. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to like get everything right. So what I did was like, I devoted a lot of time to like studying how to like write a good CV. Mm -hmm. I spent so much time like l learning about that. I went for like a lot of CV workshops, mm -hmm. like, and the most interesting thing is that when you interview for like some of these big consulting companies, they actually hold a workshop for you <laughs> to teach you how to like write the CV, how to do the case interview, how to like get through the process because it's like mm -hmm. difficult. So I picked up a lot of those tips from like different places. And then I started working on like my CV and my resume. And then I saw that as an opportunity to like also help other people. Mm -hmm. And I think that is as part of the process as I'm going through like CVs or like I'm as I'm helping people with CVs, I'm looking at what the red flags may be. Mm -hmm. And then as I got into like consulting, I started also reviewing CVs. And then I was also like seeing things that people were doing wrong and people we're doing right mm -hmm. so i would say it's like a combination of me first of all actively wanting to become a good person at writing cvs because that is like that's your cv is like your it's it's like your value like that's mm -hmm. what would get you the in, interview right so mm -hmm. if you don't have a good cv like nobody will call you for an interview so mm -hmm. building that basics or like that ground zero was mm -hmm. something that i took um that i took seriously yeah and I mean, with all your careers, you've obviously interviewed with almost every company I can think of <laughs> that is a top employer or a successful employer. Um, but one thing, especially going over my CV a lot of times is, firstly, even, even with some of your SaaS with all these red flags, it was also good for me because how I, I'm a very contrarian. So in the sense that I like to do things that are not controversial, but in the sense of like a little bit different. I like to be a little edgy, I guess you could say, especially in my CVs, but getting your opinions, especially was around, okay, where can I push the limit? And I found when you read it, especially before you knew me well, and you knew all my quirks was that you'd be like, this makes no sense. And I'd be like, well, no, in my head, for me, I'm, I'd be like, well, in my head, this is what kind of I was setting it up to. And you made it sound like, no, like, I don't understand this, which means anyone who's reading this, at least, I mean, you're reading the difference is when you read my resume, you were like, okay, let me see what Brendan's thinking. And if you don't understand, it means anyone who's skimming through would be like, I have no idea what this kid's writing about. He is a mess. He's talking about living in Japan. Is he a gardener? And that, I mean, we can talk about some of our funniest interview stories because I've been called out, I've been called out uh, during an interview. Um, I'm going to go on this quick aside, but it's really funny. And this is kind of brings up how to write your resume. And maybe I'm a different point of view. It's that in one of my interviews, I get a call and he's like, yeah, I just took your call. Cause like I read your resume, but like, Hey, by the way, Brendan, I uh, want to warn you that I don't know if your resume is good or bad. And I was like, well, okay, thanks for the interview. But like, that's a weird way to start the interview off. And by the way, the reason it's a weird way to start the interview is because we learned within the first five minutes, because during internship, I couldn't get the job no matter what. So there's no way I could get the job because it was an eight month. We were only allowed a three, four month internship. So I was like, yeah, oh, interesting. Why did you dislike it? And he said, I write it because I thought you were a gardener. And at the beginning of my resume, I have, I worked in, in Japan. I took a, some bonsai courses and worked in a bonsai nursery. So he's like, I read that and I thought you were a gardener. So I was going to throw it away. But then I read it and I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, but then I showed my, my boss and he thought it was kind of interesting and he, he liked it. So then we brought it up during our board meeting and half of them liked it, half of them didn't like it. And then we showed another our HR department and they all read through it and they were like, we weren't sure if it was good or bad. And, I'll, and then I was like, oh, okay. Um, but everyone read it. She's like, well, yeah, everyone read it. So I'm like, well, I guess it worked then. He's like, you know what? You're right. This went on for about 15 minutes when we kept bringing in others of people's opinion for a job I couldn't get. So the point of that story is my resume tends to be dynamic, but it was really things to you to make it clear. Because one of my issues on resume writing, I think we can talk about how some of the biggest challenges is that a lot of times, and this is what you taught me, what is the point of every word? There has to be a point of something. And before talking to you, and I spent out, I mean, I did business undergrad. I did so many applications. I would never put numbers. 
And then you were like, where are the numbers, Brendan? Red flag. Why are you doing this? Where are the numbers? And I finally included them and had quite a bit of success as well. So you also review quite a bit of resumes. Now, did you find, especially, you know, coming to Canada, now you're reviewing, every, you know, every, you're helping everyone with the resumes. Was there a difference in resume writing here than when you were back in Nigeria? Was there anything surprising? Like, we're, like, for example, I always found surprising is we love to include like hobbies on our resumes. Like, oh, I ski. Some of them are useless. They're like, I, I like to, like, I, I don't think they're ever useless, but sometimes they go way too long and you have to cut it down. But was there anything on a resume process, whether it be formatting hobbies that you found unique or like, oh, I would never do this typically that adapted your style or is it very similar because a, for example, Deloitte hires internationally might have very set or consistent standards. Was there any big differences you saw initially? I wouldn't like, I wouldn't say there's like big differences because mm -hmm. they're like almost the same thing, trust me. <laughs> so, but I guess like something that is probably like a little bit more, like the writing style is the same. So mm -hmm. like as a, as a golden rule, like, or just as you said, like your bullet points should have like quantifiable outcome or like, what was the point? Like, so what? Like mm -hmm. your bullet points should have like a so what, right? So I wouldn't say like there was anything like specific or like different, but I think something that is probably just like a little bit would be, that would be a little bit different would just be like in terms of like the information you put on your resume, mm -hmm. right? So like in Nigeria, for example, like sometimes for entry level roles, we are, I, we are like advised to put in things like your date of birth, all those other mm -hmm. things, but you should never do that. <laughs> like you should never do that because like that saves us as a, as a basis of bias, right? Mm -hmm. So those are like, I think that's like one of the major difference that I would see. But apart from that, like every other thing is the same. But I think one thing that I would probably just say that like my writing skill, like my CV writing skill mm -hmm. has like evolved over mm -hmm. the years, right? Like that's totally evolved. Like comparing my CV from like in the past to now, it's like, mm -hmm. like totally evolved. So yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, I guess that's one thing interesting with CV writing is that it always has to adapt because there's things that become cool. I mean, firstly, you get a new job, you have to add more information, but the styles tend to change. I always feel like you want to be as unique as possible, but still professional. So there's always a line between going too far, like too unique, too interesting. Um, I know like right now I've seen more like people adding like photos of themselves on the CV. That, that is very hit or miss. Now, now I think one big thing to clarify is typically when we're talking about jobs uh, for us as podcast, it's typically more for consulting tech. Um, I, I think a lot of your experience probably wouldn't do well in like a designer applying for a job because that's a whole different start where photos can a lot of times make more sense, especially a photographer. They need to see your thing. Um, but I do think adapting is important. Like you said, since I've known you, you've constantly been working on CVs, constantly been adapting it because styles change. And I think that's one of the hard things to do is keep up, keep up with whatever is current. Now, see, so I guess one thing is cover letters. That is always a contra, not controversial topic, but if it's cover letter is optional, do you submit a cover letter or what are your opinions on that? Because I've heard both. I think I even heard both from you, but like, what is your stance today on, should you submit a cover letter if it's optional or when would you submit a cover letter? You know what? Like, to be honest with you, I'm going to like very honest and transparent with you. Like, I don't understand why companies ask people to submit cover letter. Like I literally, I never understand it because I'm like, why? Like you're going to end up interviewing the person. Like, why are you stressing someone out? Like, to, like, mm -hmm. so submit a, a cover letter. But I would say this, like, and I, I would also say this, like, it is only in Canada mm -hmm. that I've seen employers asking for like cover letter. Like in Nigeria, like nobody asking for like a cover letter. Mm -hmm. I've also like in, applied to like the U.S. companies, mm -hmm. I've not been asked for like cover letter it mm -hmm. also depends on like the industry because i've worked more in like tech and consulting mm -hmm. and like nobody really cares about like a cover letter in tech and consulting mm -hmm. right so i guess maybe like other fields 
they may ask for cover letter. So I would probably say this if, if cover letter is optional, like I don't an, I don't have an answer. <laughs> like yeah. I would be like very honest with you. Like I don't have an answer, but I would think that if it's if you think about it and the company is like very serious about cover letter or it gives you like an edge, then you should go ahead with it. But if mm-hmm. it's something that's going to take like five hours of your life, maybe you should mm-hmm. make that decision yourself. But I don't know. I find cover letters very weird. I find the worst part is if they're optional, because every time I apply, it's if they're required, I get it, you know, put work into it, make it stand up when they're optional. My fear is, okay, if I don't include it, will someone just not look at me because they're like, oh, they didn't submit a cover letter because they don't care about the job, which could be a red flag. If everyone else submits a cover letter and you don't, it's like, oh, Brandon didn't care that much about for the job. So he didn't apply one, we're not even look at him. But then the opposite is the case is, if, you know, if I really like the job, I'll always do a cover letter. If it's like optional, if it's like, this is my dream job, I really want to work here. I'll do everything I can to get a competitive edge just in case someone reads it. It might help. But on the other hand is if you're going to submit a cover letter and you don't adjust it at all, it could also hurt you if someone's like, oh, I read his cover letter and has nothing to do with our business, you know, our business's mission. He just spam, you know, spam this in. Um, so I think that's, it's always, it's always such a hard thing, but I guess you, well, like you said is right. It's if you're going to get an interview, cover letters don't make much sense because you typically will go over that during the interview process. But a lot of times they can help you, especially if someone does take the time to read them. I found, especially for smaller companies, cover letters tend to be quite successful. Even if they don't talk about them anywhere, if you're just applying through an email, they tend to find work very well because a small company, they're maybe getting 10 applicants. They will read everyone's and having a good cover letter can get you a job. And it's got me many jobs just based on a unique way of selling myself or especially making up for maybe skills I don't have uh, on the application. So it is, it's just very interesting. It's also like hotly contested as I know, especially at the UBC, they were, they talked so much about cover letters, but then it's like cool to do them. Now it's not cool to do them. It's wishy-washy on that front. So you, you also at the MBA, you've probably looked at more, more resumes. You've probably seen almost everyone's resume in, my cl- in, in our classes. <laughs> you've read them all. You've seen, you've seen them all. And you've seen people. And I mean, most of, a lot of people from our MBA, like very successful, have either have had success in the past or are very successful now working for the top firms, top organizations. Was there anything or a commonality that you saw that's like a big red flag, like right away, big issue. I, I could say issue number one, which you taught me, it's not really an issue in a cover or cover letter or resume is that you, I've never heard about this before. And it could be just me that you adjust typically your resume for every job, not your cover, a cover letter you have to adjust. You can't, you have to change the company's name, but your, even your resume based on the skills, the requirements changing, for example, for me, having a sales background, well, how does sales connect with consulting? Certain numbers don't transition as well. So that was a big learning I took from you that adjust what they're going to read. But was there any other things that came up where you were like, why do people keep doing this? Or like, what is that big red flag you typically see that you're surprised people do, especially people who are already so successful, they should know better? Yeah, I think like you bring up like a very good point. Like that's like a very great point because like when I was like looking at people's CVs like in school, but mainly like I think mm-hmm. something that I probably see is like, number one, you should ideally like tell your CV to what the job role is asking for, right? Mm-hmm. Like I would like number one, like there's too many fluff on your CV, right? <laughs> like, okay, this is me being like, honest and a little bit too transparent or like a little bit too whatever but the people have like so 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 many fluff on their cv and then some of those fluffs are not like relevant to the job role that you are like interviewing for right so like you don't want someone that is going through this resume or your cv to be like i don't get it like what is it like people don't have time to be very honest with you. So like, I think one thing that I always say, or like a quick win is like, you should ideally look at like the job description, pick out your most relevant experiences that would actually capture what the job description is talking about, right? Like you can't be applying for a job in like 
cells mm-hmm. and be talking about something else that is not mm-hmm. in cells, right? Mm-hmm. So you should ideally like look at the job description to see what is there and try to pick out the most relevant experiences that mm-hmm. that you have. That's one thing. The other thing that I see also that people make a lot of mistakes on is like like this was also when I was like reviewing resumes mm-hmm. in university it was like people like probably lie. <laughs> lie on their CVs like mm-hmm. they talk about skills that they have but like when you go into like the rounds like mm-hmm. how are you able to like convince someone that you you have those skills right so mm-hmm. I think being honest is like something that is like very very important so mm-hmm. I think those two things are some of the key red flags I would mm-hmm. say and yeah I think the most important thing I would also say is like try as much as possible to like have like a so what for each mm-hmm. bullet point, right? So like you probably like transform something, but like, mm-hmm. so like what mm-hmm. impact did that do to the company, right? Mm-hmm. Can you quantify some of your outcome, right? Mm-hmm. How is it re- relevant to like mm-hmm. the job description, right? So those are some of the things that I noted in like uni mm-hmm. when I was like going through some of the resumes. Mm-hmm. I think... I think the so what is so important because a lot of times you think something makes a lot of sense or you'll really be like, oh, I'm very proud of this accomplishment. But if, especially if it's technical, the person reading them, I don't have the technical expertise, but they're like, I don't understand why is this impressive? Like you really have to break it down. It's the same idea. I think everyone's proud of their accomplishments. Like, I don't know if this is a saying, but like no one ever thinks to have an ugly baby in a sense of like every time they have something, they always think it's the greatest, but it's, yeah. that's why it's so important when I was giving my resume to you is like, what is wrong with this? And you're very good at being critical, being like, I know what you mean here, but I don't understand how it connects to this job. And one thing you would do that is so important is every time I'd give you a resume or a job, you'd read the job description and right away be like, you don't understand what they're asking. And I, I think I also do have, a, I have challenges or have issues sometimes under like just reading things for what it is. I always think too deeply or I get way too complex, but you'd always read the job description before even looking at the resume and saying, okay, how does this fit? So what? Um, although we've had some arguments around what I think is cool and you're like, I don't understand this, but I'm like, I'm going to take a risk here. And some, and just, you always argue about styles, but at the end of the day, it's how is this valuable? And no matter how you do it, there always should be value. It's very hard to have fluff that's seen good in anyone's eyes. It might read well, but at the end, they'll be like, that was a nice resume. And the next one who actually has the skills. Um, one thing you do, I mean, we talk about resumes a lot, but what you brought up is I feel something that no one ever speaks about is that your resume is just to get you past stage one. I think a lot of people think of the resume as like, okay, I'm going to include everything. I need to get the job on the first meeting, but the resume really just opens the door. Is And you've interviewed tons of people. Is there anything in an interview, once you get to the interview, that's like a big red flag that keeps happening or you've seen many times? Because everyone always talks about the resume to get the job, but then, I mean, you have like four, sometimes five rounds in person and that doesn't tend to be as well prepared because people will say, oh, I'll just talk about myself and I'll figure it out. And that t- tends to fail horribly uh, a lot of times if you're not prepared. Is there any issues in person you've seen that are the same red flags that occur on a CV or any other red flags you see that tend to be more in-person focused that people don't realize are issues? I can't really like talk about like mm-hmm. interviews just because they're like very, very confidential experiences, but mm-hmm. I can just touch a little bit on like things that I probably like because we did a lot of like mock interviews in uni and I think something that I and I used to like do a lot of mock interviews mm-hmm. for for friends that were like going to like consulting and mm-hmm. all all there but, but I think something that really s- stood out for me would be like things like hey you are not really answering the question <laughs> like <laughs> you are really like going off point like mm-hmm. I'm asking you what is ABC yeah answering mm-hmm. me cde right yes. so it's like like i like i think that's like the part where it is like a very good interviewer that is like compassionate mm-hmm. should actually like really help you out right should like give you that notch to be like oh, hey yeah really yeah probably like going off topic a little bit like mm-hmm. this is this is like an experience that i found my on myself mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. when my friends like mock interview me for like mm-hmm. co- consulting mm-hmm. roles like i go a little bit off topic and they're like you're going off topic so i guess like one of the things that probably people should do is probably just like walk backwards like 
kind of like look at the question itself, like mm-hmm. walk backwards from the question, not mm-hmm. just like showing some ideas. And then also it's, I would say also it's like important to like checking with the in- interviewer, like mm-hmm. just, yeah, those are some things that mm-hmm. I see that are really, really like interesting. I, I like what you say is like, you're not answering the question. Cause I think that's the hardest thing. It's just so simple to say, but it's the hardest thing to do. It's because you're nervous. You're like, oh, I, I need to talk because I need to sound impressive. But mm-hmm. I mean, tends, I find it tends to be a really good interview is that what are they actually asking? And I do think one of the hard things to do, and maybe I probably different from my roles, was that it's okay not to like have a seven-minute answer. It's actually bad to have a seven-minute answer. But like, it's okay to like not talk as much and have a little bit of silence when you're speaking. So I find a lot of times when I'm talking – even if the interview is trying to be helpful to me, I'll be like, and then this, and then, but this, this connects to this. And a lot of times they're trying to jump in to be like, oh, that's something interesting. Let me dig deeper. So I do think that one of the hardest things for me was to learn that a interview is a conversation. Like you shouldn't be talking the whole time. It's a red flag if you are, but also if the question, I found this hard for me as well. Sometimes they'll ask you a question and you're like, oh, I think they mean something else. So I'm going to answer, like you said, what they're really asking here. But a lot of times you're completely wrong. They'll be like, oh, tell me more about this experience or, oh, you brought this up. Well, like, tell me more about it. And for me, I'm like, oh, it means I said something wrong. I need to explain the whole situation. But it could just be like, oh, you used to work. Oh, you used to work here. Oh, funny enough, like I was a summer, you know, they want to talk about her. Like, oh, like you were a summer camp instructor. That's very interesting. How did you find this situation? Like, they just want to ask you, have a conversation. I always get way really defensive until I learned what you said is like, and you'd always call me. I'd be like, Brennan, stop. You're not answering the question. I'm asking you this. You, you, why are you thinking over here? You're trying to talk about how your role, how four years from now you're going to become a manager. I'm just asking, tell me about yourself. Like, just answer the question. And I do think one big tip is typically all the questions you get asked are the exact same. Like, have a relatively good canned response for things that might be red flags. Like, oh, you took a year off. Why'd you take a year off? Or tell, I think one that, and this is my personal interview tip is, Tell me about yourself. I'm a huge proponent of you better have a good tell me about yourself because every single interview will ask you, oh, how, you know, hi, Dolphus. Like, oh, kind of like, what's your story? How'd you get here? Everyone always asks it. And the worst I've always seen, especially when I was doing interviews or doing other things, is like a lot of times people don't realize that's a way to bring up things you might be proud of that aren't on your CV or ways of like dropping hints that the interviewer can bite on. Like, yeah, you know, I spent some, like I always been, oh, I spent some time in Japan doing some bonsai, drop that. Every single interview I have, they say, oh, well, that's interesting. Not really to my job, but they're like, oh, tell me more about that because we're trying to build a connection here. So I think that that's a really good tip is what is the question you're actually answering and answer it and don't overthink it. And then from there, I always would always say, like, use silence as well, not to be quiet, but to slow down because you always are talking way faster than you think you are until if you're and record yourself for sure. Cause when you record yourself, you're like, Oh wow. I was talking so fast. No one can understand me. They couldn't jump in, but uh, it's, those are great tips. And it's always very interesting. Like how the tips are always so universal, but they're so hard to do. So you've had wild success in your career. You've worked for many <laughs> of the top industries you've interviewed for probably every single, like one of almost every single company with success for some of the best consulting tech uh, firms within North America. Why, why do you think you're so successful or what, do you, how do you have so much success? First of all, you do work harder than anyone else I know. So that's like, I mean, you're hours on hours of tailoring your resume, working perfectly to talk to a recruiter, know the industry, but what do you think your keys to success are for having the success at least so early on in your career within your life? Okay, that's like a very, <laughs> that's like a very difficult question or like a very interesting question. I was, let me just piggyback on what you said earlier about um, in, interviews. I think you raised like one of the best points ever that I've had in like a very long time. Like people need to see interviews as being like conversations, right? Like people don't need to like naturally see interviews as just like trying to like kill the other stuff mm-hmm. like that like once you see it as a conversation it changes a whole lot so that's i totally 100% with you on that so i would say like to be honest with you i think number one everything i am a christian <laughs> every single thing it's 
God. Like it's mm-hmm. more of like a timing and God. Like mm-hmm. God has been like extremely great to me. Mm-hmm. I apart from God, like I think something else that I would say is like just as you said, like I grew up with like my dad didn't go to school. Mm-hmm. My dad has always been like very like hardworking. Mm-hmm. My mom studied English, uh, but she never like did math and mm-hmm. all that stuff. But she ended up studying for an aptitude test and like solving math in the aptitude mm-hmm. test, working in a very numerical field, mm-hmm. right? And I remember like growing up, my parents are like, "Hey, there's no like easy way to success. You need to, like mm-hmm. work." work hard like you need to mm. really work hard like so i kind of like kind of it's kind of like stuck in, in my brain like mm-hmm. hey you need to like work hard to be like mm-hmm. to to get good grades to get a good mm-hmm. job you need to like work very hard mm-hmm. and i also grew up in nigeria like if you know nigeria very well like getting a job is in in nigeria is like very difficult mm-hmm. being successful in nigeria is like very difficult like i won't even lie to you like and also success is relative like it's like how you define success is very mm. important right so if success for you is like getting good grades and being in the top company then that's mm. that's great so but in nigeria it's like a lot more difficult for everyone to be like to get what they want mm-hmm. so i kind of just like grew up with that mindset and kind of like started like working hard but like hey i want to have money to be Mm -hmm. able to like rent an apartment Mm -hmm. for myself Mm -hmm. what do i need to do i need to probably get a job how do i get a job what type of job do i need to do so i kind of just like work in that way Mm -hmm. and just see how it works and i would say i've been blessed by god and yeah that's it And I think mm-hmm. something that is very important that I say a whole lot is like having mentors, mm. like because mentors are like the best gift on earth. Like they're the best people on earth. Like they'll be there for you. They'll nudge you in the right direction, right? So mm-hmm. that's something that I would say really like helps you to achieve your goals. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you've worked ever since I knew. Worked very hard. And you're also always so happy. You're one of the happiest people I know. Even if you maybe aren't always as happy, you always come off so positive. And I do think positivity helps to like anything in life. Like if you're happy on the phone, you sound happy. You're in, you know, in an interview, you never seem to crack. You're always like, seem there's no pressure on you. You're always like the most calm person. How do you, with so much like, not baggage, but like a background being, okay, you, you know, you need to be successful or like, hey, like everyone's saying like, hey, like this is, for you to get what you want, you have to be successful. You have to work hard. You have to do this. It's not like, oh, like, whatever. Like, I'll try. If I don't try, it's whatever. Like, I'll figure it out. But you're you always, obviously, a lot of pressure on yourself to be successful. How do you cope with the stressors of trying to hold yourself at such a high degree constantly and, at the, I guess, the same time not – I mean, I've never really seen you take your foot off the gas. Like, you're always go, 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 always doing stuff. How have you – and the, how have you been able to cope with all the pressure since like such a young age throughout <laughs> your career and life? <laughs> like I would say it is like, also like, I don't know, like, like that's like an interesting question. Mm-hmm. I think it's also ties to like my background or like mm-hmm. my, like I grew up in Nigeria and Nigerians like generally we like dancing a lot. <laughs> Like, you can imagine, like, we invented, like, so many dance styles, right? So, it's kind of like a Nigerian thing. Is like, we know that we are not, like, it's a little bit difficult, but it's like, at the end of the day, we will make it. But mm-hmm. while we are trying to make it, we need to, like, also be, like, happy, right? So, mm-hmm. I kind of, like, I think one thing that I would say is I kind of find internal happiness. Like, I just... Mm-hmm. Like, I am naturally happy because, like, I, I don't think I would, like, I get pissed off or, like, I get angry when people are, like, really, like, de- like doing terrible things that are not DEI-focused. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, I think I kind of, like, just learn to be, like, work hard and mm-hmm. then try to be happy, like, smile. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like, I've never been, like, I can't remember the last time I was angry, so mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just my nature. I guess that makes a lot of sense. It's like anything you can do to like, I guess like you said, internal happiness helps you do 
great things in your life. And also, funny enough, you brought up dancing. I talked when I, talking through through mother pod, podcast with like uh, midday squares and everything. It's like same thing. They were like, if you ever watch his Instagram, it's like a lot of dance, a lot of energy, a lot of happiness. And one of the things I used to do before like exams, before presentations, because I have like a very extreme, I don't say extreme ritual, but like I get very hyped. I'm like jumping. I'm like getting in the zone. But I think it's the same thing. Like you have to, similar to an interview, you have to have everything, treat everything like a conversation. Because I think the hardest thing, especially, I mean, happiness throughout your life is good. I think what like you said, trying to find ways of being happy in your own way is so important. Like for you, if you're like, you like cooking, go cook, go, go, you know, get food, do something you enjoy because it's hard. I always say it's hard to be successful in anything in life, whether it be financial, whether it be in relationship while you're sad and angry, it's like so much more difficult because you're, you tend to be more narrow set your mindset and it's so much more energy, but definitely you and you being one of the happiest people, or at least the most energetic people I know really ties into everything, <laughs> everything you do. So one thing that always comes up and speaking about happiness and success is the idea of like failure. I always found, and I'm like, I don't know if I have a sassy view on this, but like a lot of times people speak about, and I have been called out on this one. So that's maybe why I have a, a different view on it is that a lot of people always talk about like fail fast. Failure is good. Let's, you know, talk about failure or a company says, you know, we want to fail. Um, always tends to come up, but, I, but I feel that's very misunderstood what it actually means. How do you define, like when a company, for example, says, you know, we like failure, we like to push the boundaries. That doesn't mean they want someone who like is a failure or is failing. What do you think it means? Or do you like when companies say that? Or do you think it's too confusing for an applicant to actually know what they mean there? Yeah, I think when companies say like, we have like a culture of failure, like we promote failure, etc, etc. Like, I find that that's like a, like, I find that that's like, like, I want to say this in like the nicest way ever, but I find that a little bit like not true. <laughs> like I, to be very honest with you, like everybody has like a startup mentality. That's good. But like, imagine failing on a project that's like worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like mm-hmm. this, this is not like your company. This is not mm-hmm. like your organization. This is like, you're working for someone, mm-hmm. right? So I think when we want to like reframe that, we probably want to say things like, hey, we look at people, like we like people that want to take risk, but this mm-hmm. type of risk are like calculated risk, right? Like mm-hmm. you want to take a risk, this this risk, or you, you want to take on a project mm-hmm. that could fail, definitely, but you need to like put in measures to understand what type of calculated risk are there. You need to have like buy-ins mm-hmm. from like management and all those type of things like you need to like you can't take such risk on yourself like failure is good definitely but i think when companies say it is like it's kind of like it's getting lost in the meaning Mm -hmm. i would rephrase those failures to like take risk or take Mm -hmm. calculated risk that is what makes more sense to me Mm -hmm. than saying like we want you to fail 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 fail. like Mm -hmm. what like how are you feeling like every single day like you are feeling like every single day then there's a problem somewhere maybe you're not doing like the right thing right so i think yeah like you can bet on something like take a risk bet on something but let it be calculated i think that makes a a lot more sense to me than like Mm -hmm. failure right Mm -hmm. i i always find it funny so i think so the idea of failing fast i mean it's really startup mentality i think really came out of san francisco but initially the idea was that People are so conservative, so f- afraid of taking risks. We have to normalize failure because a lot of times if people fail, they keep it quiet, like in a startup sense. But then people are like, look, if I, everyone's failing or everyone's having challenges, if I speak about it, I can learn them. Like I can talk to someone else like, oh, why did you fail? And you're like, oh, I had the wrong market or, oh, we spent too much money on advertising. Like getting this knowledge out there was, I believe, really where it started. I think similarly, and this happened to me in an interview for uh, Next36 during the interview process, I brought up like, you know, I fail very fast. I'm very good. And the interview said, Brendan, so what? Like, how is failing good? Like, what are you learning? Like, what what do you mean you fail fast? Does it mean you're going to fail again if we select you? And I was like, uh, uh, no, (laughs) I don't know. Like, and in that, in that one moment, I realized I was like, 
oh shoot, like, like you said, well, probably 20 minutes ago, so what? Like, if you bring up you're a failure, you failed. First of all, never say that in an interview, but like, I'm actually very good at failing. I fail all the time because what that's not a good sign. But I think it's so what? Like, what is the meaning behind? And a lot of times you're right. It's about taking risks. Like our culture allows you or an individual, if you work here, to take those calculated risks or to take a risk, maybe at some organization that would seem like a, I, I guess, a risky trade-off. Where here we're promoting you to take that risk. But I think what people a lot of times misinterpret and where I think gets lost in translation is the so what, like, why are you failing? What is the context behind it? And secondly, at the end of the day, no matter if you make a you know billion dollar failure or you launch something, you're going to get fired. Like no matter how calculated it was, like no company is going to be like, you know what? You made one big mistake. Uh, we're going to keep you on. Because first of all, it looks like bad PR. Like, oh, Brendan made this big failure. He's still here. So I do think it's awkward to have on jobs. But also, if it is on a job, they don't mean failure. Like, because failure also implies that like nothing was gained from it. They, what they mean is, like you said, risks. And I always like to say is testing. We like testing because testing implies that there is a hypothesis and expected conclusion or whatever you learn comes out of it. I think that's a better way of saying it. Definitely. So, mm -hmm. Like, I was also going to just chime in a little mm -hmm. bit on like failing fast in like, a startup mentality i think something that makes sense if we are going to like make it a lot more contextual mm -hmm. it means like you should fail fast meaning that you are failing at the earlier stage of the project mm -hmm. when a lot of investments are not being made right so it's like mm -hmm. you're failing early like so i would reframe that against like failing early rather than later right so yeah failing at the earlier stage of the process mm -hmm. just as as you said, you are testing your hypothesis mm -hmm. and you are changing, like calibrating and changing mm -hmm. things. But you cannot fail, like it's you can fail, but it's like if you are going to like invest a lot of resources in it, right? Like, mm -hmm. why do you want to like fail after you have made investment of like a lot of money, mm -hmm. right? Especially for like a, a startup mm -hmm. right now. So mm -hmm. it's more like you are testing early and getting like mm -hmm. data points earlier than rather than later. And I think one thing to touch on there is that no one, I think also organizations say they want failure or they, they're okay to fail is it almost implies that they want you to not succeed. Like if a company's like, we like failure, it's like, well, if I'm successful, is that a bad thing? Even though they don't mean that, it kind of plays out, sometimes can almost go too far where you're like, oh, like I can mess around. Like I don't really, they don't really care about results. I think that's also where the line is also hard. And I mean, that's, I think it's one thing we talk about a lot is like company culture is first of all, you say you fail nine out of 10 times in the company that talks about that, they don't want it. So it's one of those things like I remember in, in UBC, uh, during our orientation, they say, you know, we create leaders, but every, you know, every school says they create leaders, but there's only a few leaders. So if your school is <laughs> the best at creating followers, that's actually probably the most benefit if you can create the best followers, but no one wants to be a follower. So it's the same thing, like the idea is not really true to what they actually mean. Like most people, I think follower is also a bad word, but like not everyone can lead it. Like not everyone could be a CEO, but not, not, not in the sense that not everyone, if they want to, couldn't, it's that people have employees for a reason. Like first of all, being a CEO is not, probably for most people once they learn is like, oh, it's, it's a lot of work. A lot of times the rewards aren't as good as they seem. You won't, won't ever really glamorize certain people. But at the end of the day, sometimes you're like, hey, I just want to work on my projects. I care more about other things in my life. I don't want to spend 100 hours worrying about all these other things. So I, I, I like your points about what it actually means for failure and failing fast is never those words. It's either risk. It's either about not having some cost fallacy, getting out of projects early, and having an organization. I know a few of the books I read were where if your budget was $100 million, and you cancel that $2 million, you don't lose that budget. They're like, hey, you saved the company you know, $98 million for not going forward with this. So kind of reframing it is very important. Um, and it's a very interesting perspective as well. Is that global? Like, have you heard this failing culture? Like in Nigeria, was that something that came up a lot as well? Or is that a very North American thing? Or is it everywhere? You know what? Like, it's, I would say it's a lot more common in like the tech space, like mm -hmm. across like Nigeria and like North mm -hmm. America. I used to work for like some some mm -hmm. tech clients, but like really like you don't want like in Nigeria, like you don't really want to like say like 
a lot about like failures. Like I don't think like I ever went for like an interview and mm-hmm. someone asked me tell me about the time you failed. Like <laughs> because like it's expected for you to to be like a lot more take steps, like be mm-hmm. like understand the market very well, like look at a lot of the the plans there. But mm-hmm. if you fail, then it's not like you're consistently failing, right? It's like you're failing, but like it's kind of like you know why and you had like some takeaways from that failing, but it wouldn't be something that is like resource intensive mm-hmm. or like you're failing at the earlier stage in in a business or mm-hmm. or or like a concept, right? So mm-hmm. that's what I would say. And so great insights, great stories. And before I let you go, I mean you're on the move. You've done everything. You've done so many things at such a young, you know, <laughs> such an energy, you know, such a young age, so energetic. Where is there any goals you're hoping to, you know, to achieve, or is there anything you consider a north star? Or I guess in your mind, this is a good question. What would you, you know, ten years from now, wherever you are in your imagination, what would you consider success to you? I think to be honest with you, like I usually talk about my dad a lot because, like. Mm-hmm. He inspires me a lot. Um, I think, to be honest, like, I want to, like, help a lot. Like, I w- want to help out, like, underrepresented people mm-hmm. a whole lot. I think for me, like, I came to, like, North America. Like, there's, like, very few Nigerians, mm-hmm. very few Black people in, like, tech and consulting, very few Black people in those spaces, mm-hmm. right? I think, to me, one of the major drives or, like, one of success mm-hmm. for me would mean really helping underrepresented people in like spaces that don't exist like that we have like very few of them mm-hmm. right i think also looking at like providing a lot of like resources back home like like i am from nigeria <laughs> i say this a lot but like we don't have like a lot of like tech resources like mm. i i love tech right i we don't have like a, a lot of like um people with access to like computers, like mm-hmm. internet access and all those things. So providing those resources probably in the in the, in the near future, mm-hmm. I think it's something that I'm also like praying to God for, but I want mm-hmm. to like start like a scholarship fund mm-hmm. or like a, fa- a foundation back home that would really like help to like b- build education in tech in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say. So my dad inspires me a lot. My dad has like a school mm-hmm. that is totally tuition free so i want to also see what i can do in that space like just help help people that i can support and yeah that's what i would say so i think for me success for me is more of how many people have i been able to touch or inspire how many people have i been able to like help out in life that's like success for me because at the end of the day you're not living just for yourself you're also living for like other people and living for the world at large so mm-hmm. yeah and i and that's probably also where your happiness comes from the idea that you're making an impact and even with your own i mean any success you have considered like financially career-wise if tying it back to in the other individuals or by being able to make an impact you're like helping others including yourself so it's one of those things where it's really full circle and your smile shines the world adults <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks so much for connecting uh, and we're excited to keep an eye on your LinkedIn to see how long it takes to your uh, the CEO of whatever next tech company there's gonna be CEO of life, Adolphus. Thank you. I hope so. Like I hope so. One day, one day, gradually, one day. Thank you so much.